Welcome to CMS On Air, the podcast on migration and refugee issues, brought to you by the Center for Migration Studies of New York. I'm Emma Winters, CMS's Communications Coordinator. This is the third episode of a series, Accompanying Immigrants in the COVID-19 Era, How Catholic Ministries Are Transforming Successful Programs. In this episode, you will hear about Partnership Schools, a network of nine elementary and middle schools in urban areas of New York and Cleveland. The network is trying to stem the tide of Catholic school closings and create a better future for urban students. In a moment, you will hear from Jill Kafka, the Executive Director of Partnership Schools, and Abigail Acano, Principal of Sacred Heart School in the Bronx, New York. They share how partnership schools are revitalizing urban Catholic education, how they include immigrant students and their parents, and why they created an emergency COVID-19 assistance fund. Here's their conversation with Kevin Appleby. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for having Thank us. You. Let's just talk today about, about partnership schools, the unique model that it is, and and how it serves inner city youth. Could either one of you just give a quick sort of history of partnership schools and what what the, the initial idea was and, and how is it how it has evolved and how you're serving inner city youth. I know that's a lot in one question, but um, a, a, an overview of partnership schools would be helpful. Great. So I'm happy to launch in. This is Jill. So Catholic schools in New York City have had a very long history of uh, serving immigrant communities. Um, and there's been also a long history of support for those Catholic schools and many donors that have over the last you know, 30 years plus um, given money to scholarships and to buildings and to programs that supported those kids in those schools. Um, and I've been working for almost 23 years in, in supporting Catholic education and working with a set of donors who actually saw the system start to decline, you know, seeing that enrollment was going down and that some of the school deficits were going up. And this group of donors wanted to make a bigger impact um, on the system itself. They, they wanted to do more than just broadly support scholarships for kids. They said, maybe we can actually get more involved and kind of go deeper with um, more targeted support for schools. And so about, let's see, nine years ago, we formed a new organization. And the whole point was that we wanted to actually, rather than support the schools, actually manage the schools. Um, and so we formed this new organization and we negotiated a very, very historic agreement with the Archdiocese of New York and with Cardinal Dolan, who agreed to, through a services agreement, allow us full autonomy and authority over these initial set of six schools in exchange for us fully funding the schools and for us um, basically owning all of the operations, academics, finance, um, building management. And so it was really a unique concept that the church had never really given over control of a set of schools before to an outside organization. And what's unique about it is that we are in a contract for 11 years with the archdiocese. They still own the schools. So they're the governance of the schools, but we are basically a service provider. 
And so they can fire us at any time if it's not going well, um, and we can bring, get them the schools back at any time. So it's, it's unique in that it's sort of we're accountable to them for our results, um, but we actually get to make all the decisions. Um, after we signed this agreement, we had to hire and switch, switch our organization from really being a fundraising and a, and a support organization to actually a school management organization. Uh, we hired an amazing superintendent who had had experience both in Catholic schools and charter schools. And she really brought, I think, um, sort of the secret sauce to our success, which has been a really clear picture of excellence, um, not breaking what was already working in these schools. And I'm sure Abby can talk to that because we've really tried to, you know, think of these schools as, you know, deep-rooted communities with a lot of foundational strength. And we've tried to help with bringing that picture of excellence, but also a really clear path to getting there. Bringing these schools together as a network and like charter schools do, we were able to then centralize some things, let other things be done at the school level, but really keep everyone on the same page and looking towards the same, um, you know, hopeful set of better results than these schools were having when they were on their own. And so over the last seven years, we've, um, because of all these supports and, and the sort of strategic way we've supported the schools, we've increased test scores, we've gotten kids into better high schools, um, the culture has gotten a lot better in these schools, enrollment stabilized, and it's really become a model for the rest of the country. And Cleveland came sort of knocking at our door a couple of years ago, and they were interested in what we were doing. They were struggling with their, some of their inner city schools, and they said, maybe we could partner with you. And after um, a bit of time and, and a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, we, we launched Cleveland in a pandemic just a couple months ago. And so we're really proud of the fact that we're able to expand in a, at a time when you know, Catholic schools and a lot of private schools are struggling and, and may actually go away. And we believe that these schools should continue to serve these communities. Some of them are, you know, 160 plus years old. Um, they've been a rock in those communities. And we know that we're trying to address a need for high quality, accessible, affordable options for parents, especially those that want a faith-based education for their child. Uh, we don't take only Catholic kids, we take all kids, but we go back always to that history of service and community and supporting those that um, want this type of, of, of education, which we think can be excellent and can put kids on a path to success. Great, thanks. Um, could you talk a little bit about the, the profile of the children that, that you're educating? Sure. Um, so about 80% of the kids that come to our schools in New York do um, qualify for a scholarship. We have a partner um, children's scholarship fund that administers all these and helps fund some of these scholarships. And so through that, we know that if these 80% um, of students, we know that their median income for a family of four is just under $30,000. And so we know that these, we are serving students that um, are you know, living at the margins and are, are definitely struggling. And so providing that support and providing those scholarships are super important. 70% um, of our kids qualify for free and reduced price lunch. And we have 67-ish percent of our students are um, African-American, or sorry, are Hispanic and 33% African-American and um, around 66% are Catholic. So they're not all Catholic either. 
Abby, could you talk a little bit about the kids uh, in your school? Sure. Um, our, our numbers are somewhat reflective, a, a little bit different. We have uh, probably the, the most Catholic school uh, kids in the network. We're, we're close to about 67, 70%, you know, uh, census changes yearly of students who identify as Catholic. And, and then we also end up having a lot of Catholic converts too, just based on, on what we do. Most of my students at Sacred Heart are uh, from the DR. So they're from the Dominican Republic, but we are a community school. So that changes over time. In the time that I've been here, I've seen the school go from um, sort of like a balance of African-Americans and Hispanics, most of them being from Puerto Rico to to where we are now, where about 66% of our, our kids come from the Dominican Republic. And we are a priority to school. So 100% of my kids get free and reduced lunch. They get snack with us. Uh, we try to feed them three times a day, breakfast, lunch, and, and snack. It is, it is a, a real need. I, I worry about what this pandemic is going to do to this already marginalized group. It's, it's going to get significantly worse. Jill referenced earlier how parents were reaching out because they didn't qualify for, for the stimulus. But even if they did, it wasn't necessarily enough. We, you know, one of the things I heard a lot of in the uh, hardship request had to do with them having to feed their kids multiple times a day as opposed to just, you know, the one or two times that they normally did and, and what that did to to their budget. If you have to provide breakfast and lunch and dinner for, for growing kids, your grocery bill is now significantly more than it ever was before. And this was a challenge for them to meet. So we are constantly working on, on how do we provide for our, our parents so that they can focus on the students. So, Abby, you mentioned uh, that some families didn't qualify for the stimulus. Could uh, you and, and Jill talk a little bit about the foreign-born students that you serve, the immigrant children who uh, are particularly vulnerable? They, they might be in a temporary legal status or they might be um, undocumented, whatever the case may be. But what, what, what is the, the percentage of immigrant children that you serve? And, and talk a little bit about what the some of the challenges they face. Right. I, I couldn't give you straight up numbers. It, it's not a question that we ask. Uh, we do want our families to be safe with us, but I can, I theorize that a, the majority of my kids, if they're not immigrants are first generation Americans, you know, most of my, my parents speak Spanish and require a translator. Um, some of them, we do have to read to them as well, what it is that's going on in the school and they, they rely on us. So it, it is a concern when we're not there for them as we were for parts of COVID. We're there as much as we can, but we're not physically there that they could see us and come to us every day. You know, I would have family members come in and, and just give us paperwork that had nothing to do with the school just because they needed someone to look through that for them and tell them what were the next steps and what they needed to do. Um, um, we provided them vision and dental and, and we would get just organizations to come in and, and they would get their yearly dental of the school and go home with a little baggie of toothbrush and toothpaste. You know, they would get their vision checked every year and go home with glasses if they needed it. And some of that we couldn't do this year because we had to shut down early. Um, so I do know that many of our parents and of course, many of our kids struggled as a result of, of that. It, it, it is Highbridge is, is a lovely neighborhood, but it is a very socioeconomically depressed neighborhood. And 
we are a community school and that community keeps changing because as people do better, they move out of Highbridge and they should. But it just means that whoever is coming in is again at the bottom of the food chain, so to speak. And, and we're trying to, you know, energize them and give them the tools that they need, or at least their kids the tools that they need so that they eventually move on out. Great. Jill, did you want to add anything to? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that, that was a good point, Abigail, about being physically at the school and us being such a support for these families um, and nav helping them navigate the system, uh, of, which can be very complicated. And I think one example would be what we do for our families for high school placement. If you don't speak English, it, I mean, it's complicated if you do speak English. So it's really hard to navigate finding the best fit high school for your child. And if you're not familiar with the New York schools and the system and and even with the fact that your child could potentially earn a scholarship to a, a Xavier or Fordham or Notre Dame that is, you know, quote unquote expensive, um, but because of their academic, you know, uh, results that we've helped them achieve, they are actually able to afford a very expensive, you know, private high school, Catholic high school. But again, what test do you take? How do you do the interview? How do you bring your child to the school and, and make sure that they've done all the things they need to, to to actually then matriculate to that school, that takes a village, you know, we have folks in our, in our, at the network level, which is like a perfect example of why our model is, is so, um, I think, effective, because we have a high school placement team, and then they fan out and they have relationships with some of these high schools and make sure that the high schools are seeing our kids, and our kids are getting the support they need, and the parents are getting the support they need to know how to get that child into that high school and help them um, move move on. And I, I think I remember one story, Abby, of a mom who had a child who got into Xavier High School and then thought in the middle of the summer decided she couldn't he couldn't go because the younger child was not going to have anywhere for her um, to, to, to go when she was trying to bring her son down to Xavier from the Bronx. I heard about this and Abigail heard about this and Abigail spoke to the mom and said, we'll open up the school early so your younger daughter can come and then you can take your son um, down to, to the high school. So we're all in on like, how do we make it work and make it happen and do everything we can to support these kids. And, and just to add to Jill's point, we have become so much more visible to our high school counterparts in just the past few years with the work that the network has helped. I remember I would have to reach out to schools like Fordham or, or Xavier or whatever, just to talk up a student to them. And now we routinely have them reaching out to us and saying, Hey, be sure that, you know, you, you send us your, your qualified applicants. We're looking forward to seeing Sacred Heart students and, and, and what a difference. And even talking to my families where they know about a Fordham, for example, that's in the Bronx, but they never dream of sending their kids there. It's just beyond what they think that they can afford, or, you know, it's just too far to reach. And, and, routinely we're now saying no you go to Fordham you, you your grades qualify you for Fordham you are Fordham material and and the conversation where sometimes honestly you're pushing them to dream bigger and to see the possibilities it, it, it's it's fun conversation and it's way different than what we used to have before and and I was going to ask or ask Abby to tell the story about Rosa really quickly the, the girl from a refugee camp that you know came when when did she come to the school so she's she was with us for 
two and a half years. So she came to us uh, mid sixth grade and she just graduated this, uh, this past June. And Rosa came to us from the Central African Republic, which is a war nation and uh, her families were refugees. And when they first came to us, when they first came to the United States, they ended up in a uh, refugee shelter. They were registered at uh, the neighborhood um, public school for, for that first year, and it was a disaster. And their parents realized really quickly, her and her brother, that they couldn't stay here. Their kids weren't learning. They were afraid. They didn't know how to navigate anything. And somehow their, their counselors steered them towards Sacred Heart, and they didn't know that they'd be able to afford it. So that's never a stopping point for us. We reached out to them. We made sure we got scholarship for them. Um, before they were able to uh, fully apply, we, we reached out to the network and we got them, you know, just a, a little help in between. And the kids were speaking more French than English to start the year. And by the time all was said and done, as I said, Rosa just graduated this June and she's headed off to one of our top, top high schools uh, with significant amount of scholarship. She was close to the top in, in her class, doing very well. We now have her youngest, not her youngest, her second youngest sister join the school in pre-K. So the family is is putting in more kids here and we're just super proud of them. But um, I remember sitting with Stephanie Reed, who's our academic high school advisor and the father, as we were filling out her high school paperwork, at least we got to do that before COVID. And it was a process. We had to translate a lot of things to him. I speak a little French, you know, Stephanie speaks Spanish between, and, and Rosa, between all of us, we got the paperwork done. We got everything out set, you know, it was, it's all good. Abby, you mentioned uh, that you're handed documents sometimes by the parents. Uh, do you get asked to help with immigration issues that the family might have or, or, you know, need help on? Is that, does that come up often? And, and are you, are you in a position where you can refer them to like, for example, to a Catholic charities program if, if needed? Um, on the school end, yes, I, I do get asked to write letters quite often, just, you know, verifying that these kids do in fact come to our school, that these parents are in fact engaged parents, you know, who show up for school functions and so on. Um, I once had to go to court, as a matter of fact, just to testify that a parent, yes, I've known him for as long as I've known him. And, and you know, he his kids do come to our school. They're thriving members of the community. So we, we do get a lot of that. I also get a lot of just conversation where they're like, I'm, I'm so worried, you know, about maybe someone getting deported or maybe someone has been deported. And what does that mean for the for the family structure, both emotional and financial? And, and we're not always able to direct them to different resources, in part, which we just don't know. We don't have that bandwidth. But within our school, we make sure we take care of certain things. So the financials, we'll make sure that we're, we're looking at our scholarship. And if it needs to be, you know, Increase, we'll, we'll do that. Um, so socially and emotionally, we have a school counselor. We'll make sure those kids are seen and conversations are had. And sometimes we even counsel the parents. We'll, we'll make sure the counselor checks in on mom, sees what's going on, or dad, you know, how can we be of help? What does that look like? holidays, we make sure things go home with the kids. If it's Christmas, we collect the donation within our community. We buy some Christmas gifts and send them home. Thanksgiving, we collect for our food pantry anyway. We'll pull summer aside and send home a basket. We're looking for ways where we can help our families as much as we can with, with what we have. 
And I'd say that mostly happens at the school level. And again, that's like the sort of beauty of the model because we can try to do some things centrally, but so many of these relationships exist and should exist at the school level. Can I ask, um, in the intake process, do you ask about immigration issues um, at all? Or, I mean, just to have that information or is that something you don't have to ask or need to ask? No, we don't ask. There's nothing on our intake that... Um, poses that question. And, and honestly, we want our families to feel safe mm -hmm. as though this information isn't being stored somewhere that can be accessed and used in a way that's detrimental to them. So. Mm -hmm. Well, and what, what the only way we're, we're hearing about this, is, it's obviously anecdotal, mm -hmm. but what we've done with COVID has brought some of that out, Kevin, because we, um, we, we really, very quickly wanted to make sure our families were um, supported. So we decided on March 13th, we were going to forgive tuition for the, the whole shutdown of, in the spring. We didn't want parents to have to worry about like paying tuition or food or rent <laughs> or medical expenses. Um, and so we did that. We also made sure everyone was paid and stayed on payroll, even like cafeteria workers and teachers aides. But the really um, amazing thing our board chair did is he called me and he said, I'm going to give you $500,000. Um, we should challenge some more people to help. But I want this money to go to families that need it now because we know that government is not going to respond quickly. They're not going to necessarily respond at all to some of our families. And how can we give them the support they need at a, the, the worst time in, you know, in history that we've known, we started literally writing checks to families and we made it a very simple process. Here's a little form, fill it out, send us some um, kind of documentation about what the issue is. I mean, I have a quote here from a family who, who got, I mean, I think we started out sending $500 checks and now it's gone up to a thousand or more. Um, and we've helped families with, you know, unfortunately funeral expenses. I mean, just heartbreaking stuff. And they write what they need it for. And we, we keep track of that. Um, one mom said, I lost my job because of the virus. And since I'm undocumented, I do not qualify for the stimulus check. I'll appreciate your help right now because it's hard to pay for the simple things that my sons and daughters need. And a check went out that day. And wow. so, you know, and th then we raised another almost $700,000 on top of that 500. And we, we spent about 500,000, but we have more because we know there'll be a long tail to this. And a lot of families are not going to get out of there their situation quickly. So we hear more anecdotally um, about undocumented families and their needs. Just, you mentioned COVID, um, you know, it, it, we're all struggling with COVID, but particularly marginalized communities. Have you had requests, um, you know, for access to healthcare, for example, for, for a family or for even a child? Um, because a lot of times immigrant families are fearful of going to a local health clinic to, to get tested or to get treatment. Have you, have you had any occasions where you've had those requests? I, I can't say that I've had those requests. I think I've heard more after the fact, you know, someone was ill or someone was hospitalized. And so we, we've made sure to reach out immediately and say, look, let us know how we can help. You know, if you, if you need to uh, help with those, those bills, reach out to us and, and see what that's like. But I will, I will say we were for the most part, 
spared, whatever that looks like, you know, it, during COVID, we didn't have large numbers of our, of our community, you know, passing away. We, we had quite a bit of illnesses and we had some of our older, you know, extended family members, but I, I was worried very much so because again, hybrid is very, hybrid is very marginalized, but as a community, they took heed in all the guidelines. I know kids who went home on March 13th and did not come out again until, you know, sometime in June, because their parents were just really serious, but adhering to all the guidelines, masks are not an issue. When we had our parent conversations about what coming back to school would look like, no pushback, none of that, everybody understands. And I think that's why our community came through this relatively well. They, they understood and respected the science and adhered to whatever the guidelines were that were provided to them. Yeah, because New York was especially hard hit, at least early on in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. so, um. Well, and I think we also supported these families by trying to, well, by flipping very quickly to a remote learning. Um, and again, this is a beauty of being a network. We all are on the same curriculum um, and we have an academic team that makes sure that we are teaching the, the you know, <laughs> Uh, the core content, even in a pandemic. And so we sent home a packet of work for like a week, um, but then we flipped over to remote learning. We had principals driving around to make sure every family had a device. We made sure they had Wi-Fi. We had check-ins every morning on um, you know, Zoom or however each school did their own unique welcome in the morning. And then there were art classes and gym classes and music classes and core content classes from, you know, for three-year-olds to 13-year-olds, because we serve pre-K three all the way to eighth grade. And I think the ability of the team to be really nimble and providing families, you know, an experience, um, an educational experience that was still at a high level of rigor and a high bar for excellence, even in a pandemic, I think has made our families feel even more supported because they walked by while their child was doing a phonics lesson, you know, as a second grader or kindergarten or whatever, um, and they saw the, the love and support coming from these teachers and these leaders that I think, you know, if you're not in the building, you don't see it every day. So we've had sort of record um, re-enrollment in our schools, and I hope it leads to more, more families considering mm -hmm. one of our schools for their education because we, we do, uh, it, it's a whole child approach. That's what's really important to us. Mm -hmm. um, a, a, a weird positive of COVID is I think it made us just that much of a tighter and stronger community. I mean, we had to be sure that we checked in on each other religiously. Every kid, you know, got a Zoom call every day. And it, even with the youngest kids who couldn't necessarily do Zoom classes, they're, therefore they're, you know, in pre-K and K, those teachers would reach out and call parents and talk them through how to, you know, present that lesson to the students. We did virtual stepping up ceremonies for our pre-K and kindergarten students and a virtual graduation for our eighth grade kids. And I got to know families that I barely knew because I would make calls and, and I would learn about illnesses and, 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 and their family members and I would call them and so on. And it was just, it just made us a, a much tighter community. Uh, the amount of just appreciation and overflowing of gratitude from the parents to us is, I don't know, it's more than affirming. And I, part of me feels badly because I'm like, you should expect this from us, right? Uh, your, your gratitude, as lovely as it is, I, it feels overly effusive because I want them to expect this from us. It shouldn't feel as though we are going above and beyond. It should feel that this is what you are entitled to and that's what you're getting. So um, just to, to move forward, um, 
you mentioned that some of the families didn't qualify for stimulus checks and, and Congress is at, you know, an impasse right now on a new stimulus package. If, if, you know, what, what public policy changes do you think should be advocated for or needed to sort of help some of these families, first of all, survive, survive the COVID pandemic, but also to, to, to move forward um, economically and socially, you know, so that they can better their, their place in in our communities. Um, I will say, speaking Sacred Heart specifically, obviously, always more jobs. That 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 goes without saying. It's going to be even harder now during COVID. But something that's a trend that I'm noticing as we're getting more immigrant families is more affordable housing and more specific affordable housing. We have families that are not your typical American. 2.5 unit, you know, in terms of kids, you know, they have five, six, seven kids and so on. Rosa, who we talked about earlier, I know of six siblings and I don't know how they all fit into a one or two bedroom apartment. You know, that's the sort of affordable housing that's out there and, 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 and smaller units of that too. So just affordable housing that takes into account that there are larger families. There are also extended families. We've got grandparents and, and, and parents and children. So you've got three or four generations all living together and they live in, in two bedrooms. And so the living room becomes one bedroom and, you know, they, they use all space and we, get an insight into this again through COVID when now we're in their living rooms and we're seeing all the space. It's your bedroom slash your, your classroom slash, you know, where your little sister is playing. And so I definitely know definitely more affordable housing and specific affordable housing. I will say for the community as a large, just more youth programming during the school year, as well as during the summer, we have after school. And so we're able to help with some of that till six o'clock on most school days during the school year. But summer is, is a disaster for many of my parents. They don't know where to put their kids that they can afford. It ends up happening that quite a few of them, a significant number of them end up sending them back to like the Dominican Republic or wherever for the summer where grandpa or grandma or an auntie or somebody can look after them because mom and dad still have to work and they're working all these hours and the kids can't be home alone. So affordable youth programs and, and, and summer program, you know, those are two of the key things that I know the community at Sacred Heart could really use. Yeah, and I'd add, like, I mean, really any policy that brings stability to families is good for the students we serve, um, you know, and especially policies that provide a, a clear and timely and just pathway to citizenship for these really hardworking families. Um, that just would reduce the stress on, on our kids and, and on, their, on their parents. Um, and I think the bigger, probably, policy um you know, shift is more towards the school choice funding. And so, we, you know, we don't have in New York any school choice. So there are, there are no government dollars to follow the family. We have in Cleveland a, a voucher. So we do have school choice in Cleveland. And every family that comes to one of our schools there comes for free because the voucher is their tuition, essentially. Um, so I think from a broader perspective, this is a moment right now where there could be a tipping point um, tax credits or vouchers would be an absolute financial game changer for private schools. And this may be a moment where more parents might be demanding that. Great. Thank you. So I have two final questions, one for each of you. Um, first to Jill, if you have any final comments, but also if you could share where our listeners could go if they wanted to contribute um, to the partnership schools, either 
monetarily or if you take volunteers or however they might want to contribute. And then, Abby, uh, I'll have you go second because you might want to think about it. Is, I love the story of Rosa. Is, is there, can you leave us with another success story um, of a child uh, in your school? Uh, or talk generally about how, how the school just really improves their, their lives and, and their prospects in life. So, Jill, you first. Sure. Um, well, thank you again for, for having us and showcasing us. Um, you know, we really do feel like we are stewards of a long, long history of service that Catholic schools have brought for many, many generations. Um, you know, we're taking care of these schools, we're making them better, and we're hoping that they can continue to serve the communities for generations to come. But, you know, Catholic schools and private schools right now are on the brink of um, extinction. I mean, literally. And I think some of the stimulus money that hopefully will be coming can, can help that. But um, models like ours that think about supporting Catholic schools differently um, really, I think, are a, a way to change that dynamic. And so, you know, we haven't figured it all out yet. And obviously, humility is one of our core values. And we, we know we still have more to do. And, and being responsive in COVID has actually tested us quite a bit. But we feel like I think we're going to emerge stronger. And um, stay stay very responsive to our communities um, and continue the uh, the march towards you know getting getting our kids into the best possible you know high schools and then college and career and, and outcomes um, to help us uh, you can there's lots of ways people can help us um, our website partnershipnyc.org you could go um, there you can learn more about us we have a big donate now button that's um, pretty obvious. We're always looking for more support. Right now, for, for instance, we've had to buy 700 iPads um, to help our, our kids. They're only $400 each and one at a time, even if you know we can get them one at a time, we, we appreciate people helping um, all the way up to supporting bigger sort of um, efforts of ours. And another thing we have on our website is our blog. Um, we'd love people to read it and share it. We're, we're not only trying to support our kids and our schools for the moment, we're trying to inspire the rest of the country. We're trying to inspire other Catholic school leaders to look at alternative ways of supporting and running Catholic schools. And yes, we definitely take volunteers. There's a way you can contact us on our website. We have folks that tutor or mentor, um, you know, spend time in physically in our schools or, or spend time um, helping us in lots of different ways. So we, we love the more help and, and learning uh, or finding more folks that are interested in being part of, of our success story. Great. Thank you, Jill. Abby? Um, so I can think of a student from, from two years ago. I, I mean, there, there are many students, but recently there was a student, uh, Shania, who was at, at Sacred Heart and really, really smart, talented, just awesome student. And she would drive me nuts because <laughs> it, for, it didn't seem to matter what, you know, incentive or, you know, detriment we put out there, Shania could never make it to school on time. She was late every single day. She was easily the smartest student in her class, and she never made the honor roll because that's also tied to your, your you know, your attendance and how, how late you are and so on. And I finally sat her down and said, Shania, what is going on? Why can you not make it to school on time? And she tells me, I'm trying to Sakano, but I have to do this and this. And so she runs me through a schedule. And it turns out she had two younger siblings, two younger brothers, who she had to take to their school first before she could come to school at Sacred Heart. 
So she was walking them to public school and waiting till they were, you know, they went into class, they got settled and everything. And, and then she would come to school. So she was always, always late. And so I reached out to her parents and said, why do you have kids in two different schools? You know, we can, we do have room in those grade levels. Why are your sons not at Sacred Heart? We'd love to help. And, you know, we really want to get Shania's attendance right because it's going to affect her negatively when we start applying to high schools in a, in a couple of years. And her family was very forthcoming. They had to make a decision. They could only afford, with the scholarship they were getting for Shania, to send one of their kids to Catholic school. They could not afford, or at least in their mind, they could not afford to send all three. So, you know, they they understood the specialness of Shania and she was the oldest, so they were gonna put her through first and then and then see what happens down the line. And I and of course I was like, of course not, we're not doing that. You will fill out this paperwork, we will see what it looks like and we will go from there. We never start with saying what we can't do. You do everything on your end that you can, and then I'll see what I can do on my end to see what's possible. And of course, by the start of that next year, we had all three kids in school. Shania was on, on time always. She was class valedictorian last year. Between her scholarships for both need as well as academics, she is going to Notre Dame's Girls High School on a full ride. So her parents aren't having to pay a dime for Shania. They don't need to worry about Shania anymore. And they have her two younger brothers who are with us and thriving and doing well. Her, her youngest brother had to actually repeat first grade when he first came to us because it was just so far behind from where the school he was going to. But her parents were okay and they understood, they knew it. And, and now both boys are, are thriving and we're looking forward to the next generation of that family, you know, hopefully being another Shania and, you know, great things for them. Wow, that's terrific. Thanks for sharing that. When I was a kid, when I got called into the principal, the, I didn't have as positive of an outcome as <laughs> coming to visit you, Abby. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, well, thank you both for being here today. Jill Kafka, Executive Director of Partnership Schools, and Abigail Akano, who's the principal of Sacred Heart School in the Bronx. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Partnership Schools, please visit partnershipnyc.org. CMS On Air's theme music is provided by The Music Case. For more podcasts like this one, you can follow CMS On Air on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find a full transcript of this episode or get more information on CMS's research, publications, and events, visit us at cmsny.org.